we've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only $0.99. Cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Tap into your most original thinking, organize your ideas, and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast. And today we're going to explore part of the world of creativity that I really enjoy, music in a different way, soundtracks to movies and TV. And our guest is Ed Hartman. Ed, welcome to the program. Hi, very nice to be here. Thank you very much, Mark. You bet. Well, Ed is a musician, award-winning composer. He has scored music for film and TV and radio. And his credits on his IMDb page well, they're longer than my arm. I was going to say they run as long as my arm, but he scored percussion and jazz, pop, rock, Latin of all sorts of music that you've heard on TV, all your favorite programs and movies. Ed, it's quite a unique path and genre to music, writing the soundtrack, isn't it? Well, yeah, I, I became a musician really from the start in elementary school, middle and high school, especially, and then went to Indiana, got a percussion degree. I've been composing all my life. I didn't get started writing film score. At that time, you know, in the 70s, it wasn't that easy to do it. Although what's so funny about this is uh, I was into Super 8 filmmaking. I still have those cameras. And if I hadn't gone to music, I would have made a left turn out of Chicago to L.A. and probably gone to Cal Arts and studied filmmaking, which would have been very interesting alternative reality because my mother's cousin was Harve Bennett who wrote like Star Trek two through six and stuff and just off the charts producer. Anyway, so I went into music pretty solid and I was a performer primarily. That's what I was trained to do. But I was always composing through college and in spite of my professors yelling at me to do that because, <laughs> you know, I was kind of bending the rules there. Anyway, and composing out here more for a live performance and, and then a lot of recordings as, as I started to perform more jazz and rock and stuff like that. Scoring for film still wasn't something I could do easily. I always wanted to do it. And when I was doing Super 8 films uh, as a kid, it was silent. And so I would drop uh, records against them and try and synchronize music and stuff like that, which is a really interesting thing. And and the, the film, As the Earth Turns, was done by a filmmaker, Richard Lyford, that I'm very involved in. And he did the same thing in the 30s when he was working on 16-millimeter film. He was actually synchronizing records with 60-millimeter projector way before that was done. Uh, so I'm I, I paralleled exactly what he did, <laughs> and I think a lot of us have. Anyway, so so scoring is something I've only come into in the last 15 to 20 years, uh, and the route in it for me was through music licensing, where I was creating music, just tracks for different purposes, and then they became used in television and film, and I teach that as well. So it's been very indirect, and scoring has been something that is technology has caught up with me to do in that as as computers have become so good at this and i use mac and logic it's very easy 
to drop music and synchronize it against picture. You know, to do this before all of this was a real chore. I mean, I, uh, John Williams is still a pencil and paper guy, and he, he writes a scene, watches a movie, writes a scene, and then presents it to orchestrators and then records it with a symphony orchestra or something like that. It's mind-bending what he can do. For me, it's a very, very different process. And again, it would have been very hard for me to do that, at least, you know, from my <laughs> yes. the way I came through it. Well, and I love, uh, definitely want to get into the licensing in a minute, but let's talk about that scoring process. You were describing, you know, here, let's watch the silent film, and then let's try to find some music that either uh, dials up that drama, you know, uh, emphasizes yeah. the tension, underscores the humor, whatever you're getting a sense in that film. Well, the, the process of scoring depends a lot on who you're scoring it for. If I'm scoring for a, a director, I'm going to have a spotting session with them, and they probably have preconceived ideas of what they want in their, in their film or, you know, or television show or something like that, and you go through it and figure that out. A lot of times they'll create temps or references and you, you might have to, li you may listen to them and go, well, I'll create something like that. That can be really dangerous because you don't want to copy that. And it can also change the creative mood of the composer if all of a sudden they have to recreate something that's very different than kind of having carte blanche and, and being able to do what they want. I've done both. I, I did a... Um, there was a, a web series in Vancouver a few years ago, and I wound up doing a, kind of a similar piece to Carmina Burana, O Fortuna. And uh, this kind of epic, you'd, it was used a lot in trailers, this kind of big, dark orchestral piece. You know, you, for years it was like a staple. Anyway, and they had this in this kind of very it was against a comedic scene at the end where kind of this crazy stuff's happening and this classic you know orchestral piece was on there anyway they didn't have the budget to license the recording of that they didn't even know they would have to do that so i'd kind of train them on all this sort of thing uh but i wound up recreating a very similar piece what was really challenging about that was they had already cut the video to that piece, each sequence. Mm -hmm. So not only did I have to simulate the piece, but I had to synchronize the tempo and each hit point where things are gonna happen. And I was able to do this in under two hours, <laughs> which so was kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was just kind of a minor challenge for me. And, and, and the, the guy, you know, who hired me to do it, he said, yeah, you're freakishly fast at this, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, it was like 30 seconds, so it wasn't that, it wasn't that, you know, if it was five minutes, that would have been a whole other world. And it wasn't, there, there's another part of that piece that gets very wild. But anyway, it worked out really well. So, you know, sometimes you're scoring directly what we call Mickey Mousing it, where there is kind of little funny stuff going on. You kind of have that kind of a thing, you know, and like a cartoon. That's one way to do it. But other times you might score against it. And, and great examples of this our uh, Elmer Bernstein score, I think he did Animal House and, you know, uh, Stripes and things like that. And those were very straight scores. Uh, and they go off against the comedy. Uh, I love those types of scores. To me, that's the best because uh, the music really has to create the, the drama of the comedy. And that seems like an oxymoron, but 
uh, comedy is based on tragedy, inevitably. <laughs> so you have to demonstrate the tragedy to go against it. That's why I think a lot of comedy falls flat. And a lot of television shows have kind of weak scores because they tend to be more, again, Mickey Mousing this sort of thing. Typically, it's um, pizzicato strings, these kind of... That sort of a thing. Right. And it works fine. It, it's easy to do. But it isn't always the, the best score, you know. And, then, and you've mentioned yeah. some of these movies and, and even TV show themes. But there, there's often a signature or brand to the music. You know, where there's a, a passage or a sound or uh, something that repeats and recurs throughout the film that gives it that distinctive flavor. Well, yeah, there's thematic development. Uh, and, and people like John Williams come, come from a school of, uh, oh, you know, classical romantic composers going back to... Uh, you know, Beethoven and Berlioz, uh, where you have thematic development. An irony of this is a lot of comments about scoring are that s film scores tend to lack development. You listen to a symphony and, you know, a little piece. It keeps doing that, like a fugue or something. That's thematic development. And that music in film tends to be more a theme and then another theme and another theme. But it really does get developed. It really depends on the composer. When you go back to Star Wars, it's like Wagner listening to The Ring. Everybody in that thing has their own theme. And they really, you know, I think what happens in film is you're so distracted by the visuals that you don't actually hear all this stuff. Everybody <laughs> thinks about the main theme of, a, you know, something like, you know, Star Trek or something like that. But what you're not listening to is all the incidental music that's going on. It's happening. It's doing its emotional thing of supporting the scene. But the average, you know, viewer is not paying attention. The person that buys a soundtrack later and happens to get that one little piece of incidental music might start to really appreciate what's going on. Uh, probably the best example to me of a tremendous score that was what I love was uh, when John Williams did the ending scene to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Interesting thing is he didn't have any visual to go off of because they hadn't done the effects at that point. None of this mm. was computer. And uh, so he had to score this thing based on, you know, probably, I don't know, some diagrams or something like that. And it has this really musical quality to it. I mean, you know, the whole, you know, that whole thing just keeps developing. Uh, and it's just a phenomenal score. It's it's really artistic. So when people ask, what are my favorite scores? Those are the kind of things I really love where the music is present and up front and does get developed heavily. A lot of modern scoring, you know, kind of the Hans Zimmer school where you have just this kind of, you know, stuff like, hey, hey I'm not going to minimize what he does. He's a tremendous composer. But it tends to be very pulsing, percussive, and, and there are themes there, but everything else it, it, it's it's the there, there's just i don't know if the density of that stuff can get pretty intense you know it's, it's right. not it's a different type of scoring to entirely so again this really depends on so many you know variables what makes it challenging well it's cool to see behind the scenes of that kind of development let's talk a little bit about your current project ed and that is this never before released I guess, silent film before you added yeah. the score, right? Called yeah. As the Earth Turns. Yeah, Tell us about that. Well, the backstory on this this film is just off the charts. It's crazy. Um, so basically, 
There was a filmmaker in Seattle in the 1930s who went on to work for Disney and uh, developed a, directed an Academy Award-winning documentary about Michelangelo in the 50s. Anyway, he had made about nine films before he was 20. Uh, and his ninth film was called As the Earth Turns. And these were never released because, first of all, he was amateur. He was doing this on his own, just like I was working with Super 8. I mean, in fact, the, the, we, we had a really neat quote from L.A. Times critic. If Steven Spielberg had a 16-millimeter camera as a kid, this is what he would have done. That's an unbelievable quote <laughs> you know, that tells you how interesting this guy Richard Lyford was that he was able to develop a film that this was this mature and I was thinking about your program all about creativity made me really think about this because this guy's what do you call it the curve of his life what do you call anyway like a lot of us we tend to be in we can be intensively creative early on and then life gets in the way we have kids, all the rest of it. And his life was somewhat similar to this. I'm working on a biopic about it. And there's a documentary called It Gets in Your Blood that's in festivals right now that's all about it, too, that I created. And it really demonstrates kind of, again, this, this incredible period he had early on that taught him all the skills of filmmaking. But he also didn't have anybody breathing down his you know, ears saying, you got to do this. You gotta, he was just making fun movies. And this film was is really, really fun. It's a 45-minute silent science fiction movie. And again, it wasn't released because he had no way to do it and he hadn't been to Hollywood or anything like that. It was 60 millimeter. This was the sound era early on, but he had no access to sound. And that was a 35. So he did what he could. He, uh, and he did what was wild is, is I scored this film in about a month, halfway through, I discovered the information that he was synchronizing music to his films <laughs> with dual turntables synchronized to a projector and even camera. He's trying to do voice dialogue with it too. Anyway, uh, that freaked me out because I'd, I was halfway through scoring. That means he had a playlist in mind. I've interviewed his son a number of times and his son reassured me that I was on the right track because he loved Lifeford. His dad loved uh, Dvorak and Tchaikovsky. So anyway, so how this whole thing came about was wacky because in 2013, there were some articles in the Classic Horror Film Board. You're going to be tested on this after this. Excellent. Anyway, <laughs> a couple of really savvy film historian guys on, on this film board, they, they found this weird old Halloween video. Everything's timely here. Let's see if I can figure this out. Mm -hmm. And it's called, uh, I can't figure it out anyway. It, 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 what is it? Monsters Crash the Pajama Party. Anyway, Halloween video made by this company, something where it kind of exploitation video and stuff like that. Anyway, there was a couple of scenes in there. They were trying to figure out who this guy was. They discovered it's Richard Lyford. A couple years later, they finally connect with the great niece of, of Richard Lyford, and this starts the ball rolling. She winds up connecting with Lyford's son, her relative, and winds up taking over the film estate. All right, so I'm teaching drums and percussion. I closed my drum shop after 25 years, pre-pandemic, thank God. And she's taking some percussion lessons from me. And she sees, uh, I put on a uh, little scene of Buster Keaton. I set a kind of a Danny Elfman style score to just for demo. It's a really nice scene and the music perfectly fit. And she saw that and she says, you know, I got this old movie. I'm interested, you, would you like to score it? And that's how this started. <laughs> 
you cannot make this up. No, this this is I'm, out of the movies. This could be a movie, yeah. It yes. made, who knows? So anyway, so she hired me to do this, and it came out pretty well. We had it mixed professionally uh, at a post studio in Seattle, and then we put it on a festival run. Originally, it was just going to be a little archive movie for the family, but it kept coming out really, really good. It got into a lot of festivals. I mean, a lot of festivals, and... 122 or something and then it won a lot of awards we, i went to a lot of festivals and presented it we did a spectacular premiere in seattle at the seattle international film festival at the egyptian theater a 1915 building so the stories are crazy on this thing and in fact i discovered more footage from it uh, i became producer i now own the film estate of richard lyford it got me inspired to do a documentary about him that's in films right film festivals right now and then I'm writing a biopic of the first 20 years to try and highlight that incredibly creative time he had. And that's taken me all over the place in the last few years. In fact, the documentary played at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood a couple of weeks ago, which Very is exciting. mind-bending. It is, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, and I think it's interesting how, you know, sort of one domino starts the whole thing. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's, a, it's an entire body of creative work. Yeah, and then the whole backstory is on stage 32. If people go to my website or asyourturns.com uh, or at Hartman Music, you can figure out your way to it. And that, that really has it in detail. And to me, you know, I, I was, again, thinking about the theme of your program. Creativity, to me, has never been that difficult to be that creative. I mean, I've always felt, in fact, my mother's great quote that's resonated in my ear, she was a clinical psychologist. I would do something and she'd go, Creative is good. <laughs> that's it, man. That, that's the simplest thing it's, I can tell you. It's a nice bumper sticker. Yes. It really is. So, so anyway, so, uh, you know, as far as it, it's a matter of timing of having things to do and then having the skills needed to do the stuff you want to do. I mean, it's, you know, it's opportunity plus skill. I mean, things like that that are happening. In this case, it was a, a massive proliferation of all of the above. And the serendipity involved, I can't even comprehend to this day. I mean, it's still crazy. Uh, and, and in fact, the weird, weird side stories on this, this is the actual film, uh, 60 millimeter film, that I got a hold of. And that original uh, Literally DVD. Literally in the film can. Yeah, and the original DVD, which was VHS by Something Weird, I was able to connect with them and they turned out to be that company turned out to be a couple of miles away from my house and i was able to pick up that film from them because we didn't have that and i've rescored those as well and all of those parts all of those films are in this dvd <laughs> that just came out in the summer that has as your turns my documentary these crazy horror films and then the big mondo announcement is that as your turns is going to be on turner classic movies on Halloween, 9 o'clock Pacific, midnight November 1st, East Coast. So it's, you know, just kind of misses that. But mm -hmm. that's astounding. That was, a, that was a, negotia a negotiation I was able to do myself with TCM. Well, so I'm very working fun. very hard to promote that. Yeah, very um, exciting. Well, we'll definitely uh, plug that and share that with our listeners. Ed, I wondered, uh, oftentimes I ask authors and poets to give us a sample, almost a reading from their book. I wonder if I could put you on the spot to play a little sample of the soundtrack for us since you've got the key. You know, I'm, I'm, usually, I'm usually thinking about that. I haven't done that in so long. Oh, wait a minute. Do I actually have? 
you know, I, I may be able to fake this. Um, yeah, you lucked out. I, I happened to put this nearby. So there's a main theme on this thing. Let's see if I can do this kind of awkwardly. Uh, kind of the and this is kind of was somewhat where I started my concepts from. Let's see. Something like that anyway. And then kind of a key uh, chord for this sort of thing was this kind of a very, very kind of... Uh, what's interesting about the score is it's period, but it has modernistic qualities. Well, this too. is what I wondered. Were you trying to evoke that time period, uh, but also then add your own fingerprint to it? Yeah, the problem with scoring this film and the, the, the wonderful nature of it is, is kind of one of the same. The director died in 1985. <laughs> right, so you I, didn't have this chance to sit and talk about... No, yeah, I had no spotting yeah. session, and you know, I may be channeling him, I don't know. I, I literally have his film stock a few feet away from me. So whether his spirits have been involved in this, I don't know. I actually visited his home where he grew up recently, and I swear I saw some stuff. Anyway, um, so I didn't know what to do, and luckily, you know, my my producer, the the niece, uh, great niece uh, Kim, she gave me carte blanche to do what I felt is right. I love classic film scores, and I do electronic stuff, and I can do very modernistic things. But I still am drawn to a lot of classical stuff. And a lot of my music that I've gotten in TV and film has been retro football marching band. There's a weird 50s, you know, kind of Muzaki thing that was in the Twilight Zone. I mean, you know, that's me. Somebody says, I need Mancini. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> so I was channeling a little bit of jazz and a little bit of classical, a la probably Dvorak, that sort of thing. And then I love Bernard Herrmann, and I grew up watching, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still and all those, you know, The Journey to the Center of the Earth. And he loved using organ, and I put some organ in here at key moments. There's something really surreal and science fiction-y about organ. I mean, it, it's, it's just a, it's like the first synthesizers, you know, that you, those low tones. You go into a church, and, you, you know, it's, man, it's epic. That, that's why they built those things. You could feel them. So this score has elements of that. How I went through the process of scoring it is I basically used the keyboard to kind of outline themes and score. There was 20, 24, 25 scenes to this, and each one you know took a day or two to do. That's why it took about a month. I first developed a few themes, and then I scored through it scene by scene, and then started to kind of put stuff back, maybe bounce some themes earlier, you know, just kind of took it that way. And then once I had the piano in place, I started to orchestrate the instruments based on that. But those er initial themes were kind of things that kept popping up. Stuff like, uh, you know, there's also more classic sort of thing where you have kind of what we call click music. Uh, this is the kind of stuff you tend to hear in, uh, in a lot of movies where you have kind of stuff like... That kind of thing kind of creates anticipation. Rhythm and um, repetitive things create create tension. That's how you do that. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the faster things go. I, I have a lot of beliefs that heartbeat rate has a lot to do with how we perceive music. 
that you know 60 which is you know one per second something like that seems pretty slow uh, but you get up to maybe 90 and you're kind of more walking well 70 to 80 more walking pace you start moving to maybe 120 or jogging and finally you know so a lot of this has to do with how we move in space uh, as how we again how we perceive music and how it's going to work against picture um, so you know a lot of times it's setting the right tempo to the picture that finds I've talked to composers about this for years where action tends to have an actual rhythm to it mm-hmm. even dialogue a lot of composers will listen to the dialogue uh, the guy who did the Seinfeld episodes he actually scored to the to the the speed of the dialogue that was fascinating to me. You would never see that. You never, you know, you never think about that as well. Yeah. Um, well, I want to explore a little bit of that with you, Ed. But uh, I'll just remind listeners: our guest is Ed Hartman. He's got a new project called "As the Earth Turns." It's a great film that he's rescored to a silent film from the '30s. I put the link in the show notes. Well, Ed, we were talking about the range of uh, music you've done, and even the licensing. But as I look through your credits, everything from the Blindside movie to uh, Pranked to you know, Nickelodeon <laughs> cartoons. And I TV. did not score the Blindside. I didn't. I'm not. Well, the, I, I, just, I have a football in song in it that yes. just got placed in legacies, you know. So yeah. I, I want to make sure people because I occasionally somebody will say, oh, you did that score. No, no, no. no. Uh, but you have a and. Uh, but that's why I was looking at even the uh, songs available for license. I mean, it, there's the, all personalities, all genres, yeah. all, you know, potential applications, isn't there? Well, that and that's part of my personality. Uh, from the get go, I've always been fascinated by wide varieties of music. And uh, growing up, uh, I studied percussion, which, of course, got me involved in rock, jazz, Latin. You know, you, you tend to be very eclectic as a percussionist. You can be a classical percussionist, but so many of us get into popular music, and that widens us immediately, as opposed to, say, a violinist, which would really have to work a little bit harder to move away from classical into bluegrass. I, I went to Indiana, in the southern Indiana, and got into bluegrass music down there, and you know, even country and stuff like that. So to me, it's never been an issue of do I like music or not. What I tend to like is music that I appreciate the skills involved, either as performer or composer. That's what really intrigues me about that. If it actually sounds nice to my ears, that's a bonus to me. I'm a big Zappa fan, and he was very eclectic. We, you know, People tend to think of him as kind of weird punk rock whatever, but he was writing classical music. He was doing film score before he was ever you know, famous as a popular artist. He would have been a film score composer if certain things hadn't happened in his life. So to me, I have no problem doing that. I was also uh, involved in electronic music in high school. We had an electronic music program in Evanston, still around. And that, that was phenomenal to have access to analog uh, synthesizers, which forced you analog forces you to know what a what a oscillator does. It's not like a computer where you you know or an organ or something. We hit it. That's a piano sound. Something synthesized this piano here. It's not a real piano, but in those days you actually had to reconstruct every sound you wanted to do. And if knobs were not in the right place, you got nothing. I still have those kind of devices floating around out there. So to me, that was a way to expand my universe musically. And I was trained very early on that music is simply 
organize sound in time. You can add purpose if you want on there, uh, or you know who, who determines that, the listener or the composer, uh, the organization itself. So anyway, definitions of music to me are very important. And so I'm, I'm not allowed not to accept anything as music in my own, my own reasoning. But I'm allowed to like things and not be so you know, keen on other things. What's interesting about filmmaking is I start to become a filmmaker and interview filmmakers is I'm watching a lot of films now and I'm and I can be very critical of those movies and go, "Oh my god. I can't believe I just watched that." But then I go, "Oh my god, they made that thing." <laughs> they didn't have any money. It's like Richard Lifford back in 1938. How did they do that? So I'm in awe of anybody that does almost anything creative. I mean, that's the reality of all this. The the, you know, if you want to get galaxy wide on this what are the chances that any of us create any of this stuff you know and get away with it and then die you know and does it last beyond our life i have no idea film has this ability now to expand quite a length beyond our lives just as music did but composers in the you know 16 17 1800s they'd write a piece of music a lot of box music wasn't discovered for 100 years after he died could have been lost unless, you know, people like Mozart didn't figure it out and Beethoven. So, you know, we have this opportunity to present things that are going to last. I get a little concerned about things because, like, my mother was this great clinical psychologist, was pre-internet. So nobody knows about her. She there, There's no articles or things like that. You, really, you know, maybe a, a little bit of a bio somewhere out there. But I have massive, you know, internet you know, stuff out there that's way overboard to who I am. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, the future will be determined on what we see on the internet. I I don't know, but you know, we, there may be this kind of strange thing that before 1985 or whatever, there's no history, you know, there's books and all the, and they get all scanned, all the rest of it, but it may be unbalanced. And that's a concern of mine. You know, in spite of that, we have this ability to create all this stuff and, and, and create a massive amount of content out there. The incredible demand for content now that we have thousands of networks and TV stations and all the rest of that is creating tremendous demand for music to satisfy it to the point where TikTok, you know, has 10-second videos and is using up every piece of music out there. I'm getting money from TikTok, which is something I never experienced before, just based on a few pieces that somehow go viral. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so interesting. It, yeah. Yeah. And as we think about this, you know, there's all these pieces of films we've been talking about, the composing, the producing, the directing, the acting. In your experience, what is it about that collaborative nature? No film can be produced in a vacuum. No, no man is an island sort of thing, right? What has been your experience in trying to connect with the people and work as a team to produce this work? Well, Richard Lyford, the, the reason why I'm excited about making his, his work so available is he was the original guy. He was the Orson Welles that we don't know about who was able to put 100 people together in his teens between family, friends, and stuff like that, and actually create films using analog equipment. He was developing his own 60 millimeter film as well. So, I mean, he had to do a lot on his own, but he also had everybody involved as well. 
Now, <laughs> the irony of that statement, you say no man is an island. I created this documentary, It Gets in Your Blood, pretty much myself. <laughs> I wrote it, narrated it, whatever, because it was originally just a support mechanism for as the earth turns. Yes. You know, it was, now, that didn't mean I didn't need a lot of help dealing with it. Uh, but and, I, and to get clearances, I had to get clearances from Disney and Aramco and all sorts of things. And people have been really cool about all that stuff. So, you know, there is still a lot going on with that. But, yeah, it is a massive, you know, collaborative experience. And and I think, again, I'm really inspired by how Lifer did it. Now, as I create this biopic script, and I have no business writing this, but I'm doing it anyway because I'm old enough that I just don't care anymore, (laughs) that I'm going to get this thing done. It's almost done. And then I, I probably start working with some screenwriters out there to finish it up, polish it up. And then I don't know whether that goes into... Uh, my my dream would be that it's has a Hollywood connection, and then it's produced in the Northwest, where it, which really needs to have films produced out here, where it needs to be produced, because that's where the activities happened. I mean, he he actually used Boeing Field and Gasworks Park in his movie to do this stuff. The back the backstory on his production is really hilarious. There's there's amazing that that's what I'm really I've had I've spent the last three years digging his life out of the, all of this between interviews. And his own writings, because he wrote for American Cinematographer. And he wrote all about collaborative nature of this. So, you know, and, and to me, film and music become this marriage of image and sound uh, that are the basis for all of this. I mean, there's so many parts. Image can be actors. It can be costume, design, set, all the rest of that. So that all comes together. But everything happens right there between... The lens is between, you know, and that's why they do this. And Lyford, I know, did did a yes. lot of. The, in fact, he had a he had a little something he had created that he'd walk around with that would show his, you know, his view on there. And that's something I've had to learn that it's it's only what goes in the camera that matters. And I, I think that's the hardest thing for people to accept because they assume when you're filming a movie, all this other stuff's going on there. It's all that's all total illusion. You know, you, and that's why you can get away with effects these days and film everything at a green screen. That's why I can put this damn thing behind me and you have no idea. <laughs> that's freakish, you know, how this stuff works. Yeah, but, so, it, yeah. but it's only what appears on the screen. The camera what has you no hear. peripheral vision. Yes, And what you hear, you know. Well, that, I think that, that's that been the this, point of this conversation. Yeah. Is that, you know, what the music can add to what you see even to your point earlier about driving your heart rate and your anticipation yeah. or, you know, the, the fun uh, factor in the movie, it all comes right. from the mu- right. mu- music sometimes. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other, the other main chord that's become the brand for eighth sense production, my production company is this classic chord that I, I learned from Bach. And it's, it's basically sounds like this. It's just this kind of unsettled, that sort of thing. And, and to me, that's, that's a magical chord. And it's been used throughout history. It just kind of sits there and you're going, what? Where's it going? <laughs> you know? So knowing that stuff is, creates all the emotional stuff that's going on. And then as your turns, there are very strategic points where that, that chord comes in that are in the middle of the movie and at the end that are, to me are key to the whole thing. So, you know, that's what truly excites me. And both of those scenes, to me, are the best scenes in the film. I can point exactly out the moment where that happens, you know, to the, to the tenth of a second that the audience is going to go, 
Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's really cool. To me, that's the whole point of this is if you can create that thing, that essence of that. And it's going to, it has to be a combination of audio visual to do it. doesn't mean you have to have anything audio, but you know, I mean, you can have a visual moment that's that strong and you can have an audio moment that's that strong as well. And nowadays you have sound design that's so much of this. My biggest concern is that sound design is kind of slowly taking over score. And, and I, I can certainly put together an electronic score that's, you know, based on sound effects and, and drones and stuff like that. And it's fine. It does the job. But I wonder what the other option is. And that's, you know, the filmmakers I want to work with, I'd, I'd rather explore those kind of things. I've done the ambient thing. It's okay. I don't mind the money. I'll get paid for it. And, it's, and it works. But, you know, every once in a while you watch a movie that's scored differently. Uh, and you're like, wow. I, I, I think uh, the what's the chess show on Netflix uh, that was big? Um, yes, the Miguel. Queen's Gambit. Queen's Gambit, yeah. scored by Carlos Rivera or Rivera or something. Unbelievable score. And he started with very simple piano, and then it actually talked a little bit, and it gets more and more complex as it goes, just like the game. You know, so he was trying to mimic stuff that's going on on a subconscious level, and I think that's one reason that's such a great series that was created you know wow. terrific yeah well ed it's been a lot of fun talking to you i love the backstories of the, these works that you're putting together remind us how we can connect with you and to follow the work and sure. get involved in how this thing is going forward for you well as i said if you google me you'll probably find me but um there is another Ed Hartman who has like a furniture store in the Midwest. Store in the Midwest. <laughs> but most of it tends to direct to me. EdHartmanMusic.com is kind of where all things I do emanate from. And uh, it gets in your blood as the documentary about Richard Lyford. And that there is a page on that website. But if you go to AsTheEarthTurns.com, then you see all sorts of stuff about the film. And it has links everywhere as well. So between those two, you can contact me or whatever is necessary. I do teach music licensing as well. Uh, and uh, in fact, I'm, I'm wor- working with a new presenter on that and we're going to archive that project so it'll be something that somebody can do uh, as opposed to, I still meet with people one-on-one. Zoom's been great for that because I can share yeah. screen and uh, you know documents and all the rest of that. Well, but we'll again, definitely put all those links in the show notes and uh, the, you definitely know, encourage thing. people to connect. Yeah, yeah, and Turner Classic Movies. And it's a great movie to see. It is on Amazon and Tubi. You can see it anytime. And if, if somebody's really hurt and they want to see it, they can contact me and I'll send them a private link for that as well. And the <laughs> documentary is actually in a number of festivals that are online and you can usually catch it some way that way. And again, I can make that available. The DVD that has all of this stuff is available right now on the TCM shop and uh, Walmart and Amazon, all the rest of that. And it came out really well. Uh, That's a collaboration. That's part of filmmaking. There's a whole other level of collaboration that goes on on the business side of filmmaking that's, that's off the charts as well. Yeah. Well, all these opportunities wouldn't happen without that, I'm sure. That's right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ed, for being our guest. Ed Hartman, composer, film producer, and putting out a great project called As the Earth Turns. And Thank he's at edhartmanmusic.com. Well, listeners, come back again next time. We've landed in Seattle today, but we're going to continue our around-the-world journey talking with creative practitioners of all kinds all around the world about how they get inspired, how they organize their ideas, and how they create the connections and gain the confidence to launch their work out into the world. So until next time, I'm Mark Stenson, and we're unlocking your world of creativity.
Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and ThePeaceRoom.Love. If you like our podcast, here's another show you might like. Turmeric and Tequila with Kristen Olson. Questioning a better way. One gracefully disruptive conversation at a time. Authentic, aware, influential, and grateful. Look for and follow Turmeric and Tequila.